Last year, I criticized feminist ideology in my speech here at NatCon. I said that great nations need great families and that there was no way to get from the principles of modern feminism to great families. And I took some heat for this. I was even investigated for Title IX violations at my home institution a few weeks after the speech, though I was assured that the speech had nothing to do with the fact that I was investigated. Free speech, you see, is perfectly secure on modern campuses as long as we do not cross the sacred principles of the gynecocracy. But I am freer now. If last year I criticized the modern independent woman, this year no one even knows what a woman is. <laughs> last year I called modern feminist women medicated, meddlesome, and quarrelsome. My critics then harassed my wife, tried to spike my financial accounts, and try to get me fired. Sounds like vindication. <laughs> These ideologues, though, should be treated with magnanimity and understanding. They are sheep, not lions. And they are eunuchs in our post-family order, and they are among its victims. You see, family decline is evident all over the Western world, and uh, we all know the song, but let me just give you a couple. Uh, many things we used to take for granted, we can no longer take for granted. We thought most people would want lifetime companionship and marriage. No more. Each generation fewer desire marriage and fewer marry. Each generation, uh, we, we used to think that, each, that women would want to be mothers. No more. Within a generation, near a majority of women will be childless if current trends continue. We thought men would be manly and responsible. Much less so now. Many men are not rising to the level of self-respect or responsibility. And since a country is a collection of men and women united in memory and committed to a common regime, if women do not have children, if men do not rise to responsibility, if they do not marry, the country has no future. We're hosed, right? And this movement uh, of family decline seems universal. It seems fated, even. Uh, when I have thought about it, I have in some part been inclined to that opinion. Nonetheless, so that our free will not be eliminated, I judge that fate controls only half our actions. She leaves the other half for us to determine. And if we're going to determine it intelligently, rollback of these ideological trends requires that we understand these ideological trends. Last year, I began to peel back the onion of one of these forces, the ideology of feminism. Feminism does not mean women in the workplace or equal opportunity, as some might have it. Feminism means erasing the difference between men and women. It means females seeing themselves as independent of the family economically and emotionally. And it means bringing an end to all sexual taboos. This is how the feminists themselves define their project. More women in the workplace or equal opportunity are just intermediate goals toward these larger, more revolutionary goals. This is why today's feminists are perfectly okay with disparities that favor uh, women, like more men go to prison, but express maximum outrage at disparities that do not favor women. Equal opportunity has never been the goal, ever. It has always been an intermediate goal that helps them peddle their revolutionary goals at any particular time. And rooting out the revolutionary goals is necessary to recover family life. 
And this is going to involve a lot of peeling back of the onion, as I say. Thinking about a world without feminist ideology is absolutely necessary for national conservatives in our context. Today, however, I want to leave the woman question behind. Let's talk about sex and the sexual revolution. Peeling back the layers of the onion here will be uncomfortable too. The sexual revolution, as we know, is a big deal. No person under the age of 50 remembers the world before the sexual revolution. It has been normalized. And the world before the sexual revolution is only available to us in black and white. Now, the sexual revolution, like feminism, is not a set of policies. It is a whole approach to human life. The sexual revolution, of course, comes to us in policies, such policies like sex ed in public schools or deregulating pornography or gay rights or trans rights or bikinis, and now I think thongs. These are all part of the sexual revolution. But the revolutionary assumptions of the sexual revolution make all of these goals and policies possible. And only after we root out those assumptions in our lives and in our thinking can the work of recovering family life begin. If you go after the policies without going after the assumptions on which the policies are based, no victory is permanent or really even worth having in some way. So what are these assumptions? That human beings are fundamentally sexual creatures from birth. That men and women have the same interests in sex, mostly sexual pleasure. That emancipating and affirming every iota of, sexual, of one's sexual nature is a prerequisite for a good life. That stigmas and taboos require natural and uh, repressed, excuse me, natural and healthy sexual desires. And that nothing is more important to human identity than these sexual desires. This is the principality that we're fighting against, these assumptions. And to support this vision, and here I think Alex's talk is very much aligned with mine, we have adopted what I call a whole new sexual constitution. All political communities have a sexual constitution of some sort. By sexual constitution, I mean a set of norms or mores expressed in terms of shame and honor that shape and guide desire towards some things and away from other things. Laws provide public reinforcement for these norms and mores. Certain sexual practices will be encouraged, certain will be discouraged. People will rank sexual goods somewhere among the many goods that they can pursue. Other practices, you know, aside from those mostly affirmed by our sexual constitution, might be tolerated, but they will be discouraged and dishonored. A sexual constitution, in other words, promotes a way of regulating and honoring sex. The assumptions of our sexual constitution, our particular brand of the sexual constitution, is what I will call a queer constitution. We have a queer constitution. Today, all who live under our queer constitution boldly claim that they are following their authentic selves. But their authentic selves always seem to go in the same direction. They celebrate drag shows within gay pride events. Sexual contagions lead girls to think they are boys, but they rarely lead them to become nuns. Authentic selves have few or no children. 
Rarely are they mothers of 12. Most everyone marries later. Fewer marry at all. Most everyone thinks sex outside of marriage is no big deal. Most everyone accepts pornography in some form. Our independent thinkers all move in the same direction, in the direction that is of the queer constitution. And this new constitution, as I say, shapes our world. It makes men and women different than they used to be. Now, I'm going to talk about pornography as part of this queer constitution, but there are just a lot of different things that one could talk about in this way, and I'm happy to talk about others in the, in the uh, Q&A. Uh, I think pornography is a safe topic to talk about in this way, but you can apply this in a lot of different ways. Obscenity was effectively deregulated in the United States between 1957 and 1972, and a pornography industry grew up. Then internet uh, pornography uh, inaugurated a second era of obscenity, one where all kinds of pornography are readily available on every device. And pornography consumption has skyrocketed, mostly among men. What of the effects then? Well, clearly one of the uh, effects is that pornography consumption leads to the acceptance of all manner of different sexual practices. <laughs> and thus supports our queer constitution. But what I want to talk about is, I think, a more important uh, element of this, is what the deregulation of pornography does for human eros, for the human desire. Now, eros is you know, a desire for more that is thought to be one of the main aspects of our psychology, according to ancient thinkers, and I think this is true. Eros, they say, is grounded in the body but it need not stop there. Philosophers, for instance, are often thought to have an erotic desire to know. Tyrants have an erotic desire for power. Ambition is grounded on a lacking that we all sense that moves us toward greater things. Now, sexual eros is a particularly low form of eros. If people are taught that sexual eros is the highest thing, or connected to the most true understanding of happiness, they will lose higher ambitions, higher responsibility, greater vitality. Pornography is not the only factor explaining the widely observed decline of men, but it is hardly an insubstantial one. Pornography points to the limiting of manly ambition and uh, two sexual contexts, that is, their ambition is uh, related only to sexual con conquest, rather than the discipline of Eros toward higher things. Pornography marks a kind of enslavement, one our elite masters are happy to see. And I was just reading Aristotle the other day, and uh, his teaching on the tyrant, uh, if a tyrant wants to be successful, Aristotle says, the best thing he can do is make sure that none of his subjects have high thoughts. And like, pornography is a great tool to make sure that you don't have high thoughts or high ambitions. A tyrant loves it. So pornography is a threat to manly ambition and to high thoughts. Now what should national conservatives aim to do when it comes to pornography? I have lots of suggestions, here's a couple. It would be great to have investigative journalists do exposés on the poor girls used as sexual tools in the porn industry. I recently saw an article about a young woman who always dreamed of being a porn star but then found the way of life degrading, and she left the industry. Anyways, the images of her will never leave the internet, ever. 
How did they get into it? How did these young girls get into it? What were the working conditions like? What were they asked to do? How did having videos of them on the internet affect their life course? If we had a free press in this country, those questions would be questions of pressing public import. Maybe someone could take them up. Attorneys general could investigate porn companies on the model of the tobacco settlement. Everything porn companies and websites do to generate clicks, addiction, and escalation of porn use should be subject to investigation. New obscenity laws should be passed, not unlike the national law of 1996, and attorneys general and district attorneys should flood the zone on a scale not unlike how the left has flooded the zone in the post-Dobbs environment. We should go after the Supreme Court decisions that deregulated uh, pornography, knowing much more about the topic than we did in 1957, and brick by brick try to overturn, depending on which one you want, Roth or Miller. The porn industry, in other words, must be put in ever greater legal jeopardy. But why would we be doing this? All of this is done to create an atmosphere where pornography is dishonored in the public mind. Enough has been done to demonstrate its pernicious effects on men. More needs to be done to show that the industry is filled with sickos and lowlifes who prey on vulnerable women and cause untold social ills in what they do and in what they leave undone. The finances of the porn companies could be scrutinized with some of the 87,000 new IRS agents. I'll take the under on that being done. But. Anyways, again, why would we do all of this? It is done to encourage the subordination of sex to higher ambitions, to show that people are more than their sexual desires, that to govern Eros is to be capable of greater things. We have to move the needle on these policies, but our goal is, like the left's was, to have long-term ambitions to create a new sexual constitution. Now, as I mentioned before, in picking the example of pornography, I am choosing a relatively easy example. It's easy when you pick on men. Peeling back the sexual revolution's onion reveals at its center these revolutionary assumptions that man is fundamentally sexual. Every argument should always point back to the idea that we are not. We, why should Freud govern us? We should govern ourselves. And this is the mission, to confront the idea that sex and sexual identity defines the human good. Obviously, this mission has implications for all kinds of modern American institutions that we take pride in. Man is an erotic animal. But eros is not primarily sexual. Man is a political animal, and man is a rational animal. Our queer constitution stunts eros to make us less political and less rational. Can a country saturated with pornography be a great country? History hardly provides examples, and this is not an accident. Great countries have great men. Great men are produced by a sexual constitution. Solid families arise from the surplus of male ambition and accomplishment. Pornography undermines all this, and the project of revivifying manliness must start not by seeing men as victims of this scourge, but rather by teaching men about what self-respecting and respectable men desire and serve. 
they wouldn't serve pornography. They would have a mission. Fraternity would be embedded in their lives. They would strive for higher things. God, family, country. Uh, men are in a bad way. And manning up is a cultural project that requires a new sexual constitution. Thanks.